Okay. If you'd like to take a seat and we're going to open God's Word now. If you turn in your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 25. Um, If you're visiting with us this morning, we're going through a series in the book of Job. And today um, we come to the shortest speech um, and probably the worst as well. In fact, I was was thinking I could probably call this um, sermon I'm about to give um, the worst sermon you'll ever hear, but I didn't want that to be in any way prophetic (laughs) as to what my sermon might be, so not going there. Um, But what you are going to hear from Bildad is going to require wisdom um, because it's so wrong. Uh, Like any good counterfeit, though, uh, and the better the counterfeit, the closer it is to the original, right? Um, There's a lot that Bildad says which is true, but it's a counterfeit. And so as we read from God's word this morning, um, we need to be discerning. Um, as we always do before we look at God's Word, we pray, but let's do that all the more this morning as we come to God's Word. Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, what a great blessing it is to meet this morning with you, the true and living God, and we thank you for the, the, the joy of Christian fellowship. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings. And Father, we want to pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see hearts that are discerning truth from error. And Lord, we pray that you would open our minds, that we would understand your word. And Father, we pray that we would, you would open our ears, that we would hear your voice speaking to us through it. So Father, please be with me and bless me as I speak, that I will be a blessing. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, Dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man, who is but a maggot, a son of man, who is only a worm. This is the word of the Lord. The church in every age has to fight for the truth of the gospel. Because as we've seen in the book of Job, we have a real and dreadful adversary in the devil, a supernatural being who is constantly trying to lead us astray, who prowls around the earth, the Apostle Peter says, looking for someone to devour. And as such, we must be prepared to resist him, standing firm in the faith. In the famous hymn, the church's one foundation, we memorably sing, though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? 
And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. That's often the cry of the believer, isn't it? How long, O Lord? How long must I wrestle with this painful trial? How long must I patiently endure this difficult situation? How long must I do battle against the world, the flesh and the devil? And it's a timely reminder that we must always be on the lookout for those who would pervert the truth of the gospel. Who would twist and modify the truths of God's word and so present to us another gospel which is really no gospel at all. We come this week then to the shortest and thankfully the last speech of Job's three friends. Christopher Ash um, says that it's as though Bildad stutters into silence. He's exhausted every avenue in trying to condemn Job with his transactional theology of spiritual legalism. And in his third and final attempt, all he can manage is a measly six verses. And that's all we're going to focus on this morning. Next week, God willing, we'll look at how Job responds. And incredibly, what uh, what Bildad says in only six verses will take Job an entire six chapters to respond. But more on that next week. The speech uh, which Bildad makes, though, can be summarized into three distinct points. They're there for you on your sermon outlines, if you need to look at them. Point one. God is unimaginably great, verses 1 to 3. Point 2, humans are intrinsically flawed, that's verse 4. And point 3, hence we are all of little consequence to God, verses 5 and 6. The only problem with what Bildad says, though, is that he mixes a little poison into each point and so ends up polluting the whole thing. I did a children's talk once where I tried to illustrate the danger of false teaching. I thought it would be a good idea to photocopy a $100 bill. I didn't realise it at the time that such a thing was illegal and that one of the elders in my congregation was developing the software to notify the authorities that anybody that photocopies such said currency would be notified. Even though I'd only photocopied one side of the bill, the paper I printed on was clearly not for legal tender. Once I found out it was illegal, I immediately destroyed the note which I had created. But like the danger of a fake counterfeit note, we also have to be on the lookout for fake counterfeit gospels. Messages about God which are not in keeping with the truth of God's word, but are actually more in keeping with the delusions of the devil. Let's turn and consider in more depth then where Bildad goes so wrong. Because did you see it? In many ways, what he sounds sounds so right, doesn't it? It looks like the real thing. You see, in verses 1 to 3, Bildad talks about how God is unimaginably great. That in particular, dominion and awe belong to him. And that's true, isn't it? As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, God is the blessed ruler, the King of kings 
and the Lord of Lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. God is so much greater than anything we could ever imagine. His majesty is so awesome that we could not survive if we were exposed to his presence. That's why God has to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock and even cover him with his hand as he passes by as like a divine shield. Even after that, Moses shines with glory even though he's just caught the afterglow of God's departing presence. Such is the awesome majesty of the Lord. Bildad rightly acknowledges how transcendent and holy and righteous the Lord God Almighty is, that he establishes order, or more literally, if you have an ESV version or um, something like that, makes peace in the heights of heaven. But what Bildad misses or overlooks is any idea of God's grace. That the one who is so high and exalted is also merciful and loving. That even before he had created the heavens, and you have to really get your mind around this. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 1, even before God had created the heavens and the earth, it was in God's heart as to who he would choose to redeem. Not just in the sense that he foresaw who was going to be saved, but in keeping with a much more profound theological truth that he foreknew who were going to be his. Bildad can't see that God doesn't just make peace in the sense of establishing order, but that he makes peace in even before he creates the world of reconciling people to himself. In Deuteronomy 32, we read of this beautiful description of the Lord's love for his people. It says this, In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions, the Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. It's exactly what Sonia shared with us this morning, isn't it? About how God saved her from the wasteland of her life. That's what God did for Israel on a corporate national level. It goes on to say, he made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruits of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock and with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest kernels of wheat. You drank the foaming blood of the grape. Such is the loving kindness and goodness of the Lord. He delights in providing for and caring for his people. Bildad, though, only sees God as an all-powerful landlord, someone who is removed and aloof, who cares more about maintaining the order of the universe than he does about those in his creation who break it. 
You see, while God is unimaginably great, in contrast, Bildad sees human beings as being intrinsically flawed. And now, once again, there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? Ever since the fall, we are all marred and negatively affected by the result of sin. Indeed, there is not one aspect of our life which hasn't been impacted by sin. None of us can boast in our own works because everything we do has been corrupted. As the prophet Isaiah says, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. But the thing is, Job has never claimed to be perfect or without sin. The Lord himself has declared him to be blameless and upright, but that's not the same thing we've been seeing as being declared perfect or sinless. They're two different things. What Job correctly identifies, though, is that his greatest need of all is, like Simon was mentioning to us before, is the ministry of a mediator, an advocate who would stand in the gap between himself and God and so provide peace or what you might call more technically reconciliation. Someone who would not only be fully man and fully God, but who would also take upon himself the curse of sin. Who would in particular suffer just as he has. But once again, this is precisely the kind of truth which Bildad and each one of his two friends rejects. They have no room in their way of thinking for one who would take the punishment for someone else. But that's the scandal of the cross, isn't it? That the innocent should suffer for the guilty. Because the problem with Bildad and his mates is that they're trapped by their own self-righteousness and in particular legalism. They think that their right standing before God is based upon what they themselves can do. It's exactly the same kind of trap that the Galatians had fallen into. False teachers had come in and they had perverted the truth of the gospel. They had demonically deceived or quite literally bewitched the Christians there into thinking that their standing before God was based upon their observance of the law. And so Paul rebukes them. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? The way of faith is completely antithetical to the path of law, Paul says here. Because the law says do and do and do some more. But the way of faith declares that it is done. The atonement has been made through the suffering of the righteous one, paying for the price of those who are guilty. And what God calls on us to do is to believe. As Paul says to the Galatians in in chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. And then he goes on to say, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
It's a beautiful example, really, of divine symmetry. Because the way that sin entered into the world was by the disobedience of one man eating from a living tree. And in the same way, the righteousness or the salvation that we receive comes through the obedience of the one man who actually died on a dead tree. And whereas eating from the fruit from the living tree brought death, eating from the fruit of the dead tree of the cross brings eternal life. You see? Isn't that amazing? Bildad was right that no one by their works can be declared righteous before God. That's just an impossible task. But Bildad is wrong because he doesn't see the wisdom of God's purpose in redemptive suffering. You see, that's really what the book of Job is all about. It's not so much about the subject of suffering per se. It's really about where and how to find wisdom. Even more specifically, how intrinsically flawed human beings like you and me can be reconciled to a God who is unimaginably great in their self-righteousness and pride, Bildad and his two friends reject God's way of salvation. All they can see is themselves and their own performance. A legalistic system of transactionalism in which the religious are always rewarded and that the irreligious are always and immediately punished. But in so doing... Each of them is making themselves into a saviour. They don't need God's mercy or grace because what they have is themselves. Do you see? A couple of months ago, we looked at Isaiah 53. And I'd just like you to turn over to it again with me so you can see how integral to God's plan it was to have his one and only son, who is unimaginably great, suffer. The whole chapter is amazing, but what a lot of people don't realise is that the section on what is referred to as the suffering servant doesn't start at chapter 53. It actually starts at the end of chapter 52. Let me just read to you what it says from verse 13 of that particular chapter. It's just after Psalms, if you're trying to find it. And notice that it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. You see, this divine son of man is going to be beaten to a pulp, beaten beyond human recognition. Such would be the extent of his suffering. For what we were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Now, chapter 53 immediately goes on to famously describe this mysterious and glorious figure of the servant who will suffer so terribly for the guilt and the shame and the sin of God's people. 
that he will be despised, he will be rejected, and that he will even be stricken by God himself. And that's precisely what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. He would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. The innocent one for the guilty. The righteous one for the sinful. But then just take a look at what it says at the very end of the chapter. These verses are thrilling. Starting at verse 10, we read, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And then it says, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, gressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's such a stunning prophetic foreshadowing of the gospel. And sadly, it's what Bildad completely misses. We all would, though, if it were not for the grace of Almighty God. Because as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the Lord has chosen the foolishness of the cross to shame the wise. And that's because God has chosen to save us through faith in the redemptive suffering of his son so that no one can boast so that no one in their self-righteousness or pride can say, I deserve this. Someone has once described Bildad's understanding of God as maggot theology. It's accurate, or rather, it's as accurate as it is offensive, because if you take a look again at what he says in verses 5 and 6, that's precisely what Bildad thinks. If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, the son of man who is only a worm. One of the last things that Jesus said while he was being crucified upon the cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a quote from the opening verse of Psalm 22. And if you know the rest of Psalm 22, you'll know why he said it. Because on the one hand, it seems like a great statement of, well, maybe doubt or unbelief. But if you know the rest of Psalm 22, you'll know that it's actually pointing in the complete opposite direction. It'd be like me getting on a horse and saying or quoting the great epic poem There was movement at the station for the word had got around that the cult of old regret had got away. And if you weren't familiar with the man from Snowy River, you'd think that's great, Mark's lost a horse. But what I'm actually claiming is to be a hero. I'm actually claiming to do the exact opposite of what I seemingly said. 
If you're not familiar with Psalm 22, turn over to it with me. Uh, You'll see that it's all about this Davidic king-like person, a son of man, who once again suffers horribly. This is one of my favourite psalms because it just, I think, so accurately describes and predicts the suffering which Jesus himself would go through when he was crucified. We don't have time to read it all, but just look at what it says down in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. Sound familiar? It's almost exactly what Bildad says in chapter 25 of Job. But then David goes on to say this. All who see me mock me. I hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's quoted almost verbatim, not once, not twice, but three times when Jesus is dying on the cross by the people, by the soldiers, and very unoriginally, even by one of the criminals that is being crucified right next to him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, that could just be a coincidence. But then just take a look at what David goes on to say in verses 15 to 18. He says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. This is precisely what occurred during Jesus' crucifixion. His hands and feet were pierced and they even divided lots for his clothing. But it's how the psalm ends though, which is really the most incredible thing of all. Starting at verse 29, we read, All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Or as the Lord Jesus would say, it is finished. You see, the really incredible thing about this suffering servant is that by defeating death himself, he's going to be worshipped by those who have died. Those who cannot keep themselves alive will one day worship this great suffering king. And that is precisely what is happening today. Right now, this morning, we are coming together to worship Jesus. You and I have been having his righteousness proclaimed to you, just as this psalm had said. Because by trusting in Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of sins and therefore the sure and certain hope of eternal life. And this is not just because of anything we ourselves have been able to do or to achieve. 
but simply because of what Jesus has done. The famous mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness, though, without knowing God makes for despair. But knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. That's precisely the truth which Bildad and his two friends never grasped or understood. But it's the truth which stands at the very centre of the gospel. You see, we need to grasp these three profound truths. First, we need to see how holy God is. Second, we need to see how wretched and sinful we ourselves are. That as Sonia confessed earlier, there is nothing that we or she or any of us could do to save ourselves. But then most important of all, we need to see how Jesus has suffered and by suffering has taken the punishment of our sin upon himself. Who by standing in the gap between ourselves and God brings us peace. That's the way, the only way to be made right with God. Is God speaking to you this morning about putting your faith in him? As we've already seen, there are just three questions you need to ask. The first is, do you believe that there is a God who has made you and to whom you must give an account? Do you believe that he's holy and righteous and good? That's the first question. The second question is, are you willing to acknowledge that you are a sinner and there is nothing that you could do to save yourself? And the third question is, are you prepared to put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus that someone has suffered in your place? Will you turn from your sin and follow him as Lord, like Sonia did? For that's the only way you can ever be right with God in comparison to the false way of salvation espoused by Bildad. Friends, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion or belief system or philosophy in the world. Every other way of viewing the world says it's about what you can do. Christianity is the only belief system, the only message it says it's been done. What we really need to watch out for, friends, is that we're not tempted then to add to the gospel, in particular to try and finish off our salvation by works rather than resting in what Christ has, has done. That's Satan's strategy, it seems, doesn't it? Oh, yes, you can believe in Jesus, but just add to what it, it, he, he has done. Finish it off. Start with him, that's fine, but add to him. But by adding, you take away. That was the era of the church that Galatia had fallen into, wasn't it? But it's never the way to receive God's blessing. The Apostle Paul says to them, Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you, work powerfully among you, because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Is it because of your own human performance? Or is it because of the divine uh, provision that he's provided for in his son Jesus? 
Because when we rely on Christ, the glory is always going to go to God rather than ourselves. It's an incredibly weak thing to do, but it's the only way to receive Christ's strength. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, let me encourage you to look to Christ. Put your hope and trust in him. As we've sung already, Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Though Satan might throw all his evil arrows at us, Christ is always faithful to make us stand. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So put your faith in him alone, for only he can save. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and your grace and your mercy and the forgiveness that you offer us, that you gift to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that this would be more and more precious to us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to plumb the depths, not just in our understanding, but in that deeper knowledge of our experience, knowing how much you love us in Jesus. Lord, thank you that you've spoken to us through your word today. And as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Lord, may you meet with us in a very profound way, knowing that you are the true and living God and that you love us and that you've saved us. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing, shall we, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper.